Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week from someone who had contacted me earlier and said, Carol, I am so frustrated. No matter what I do, I can't stop probing the perimeters. To get triggered, I mess around with the computer. I look for benign images that I know will activate my fantasy, and then I'm off to the racetrack. Please help. Now, the truth of the matter is, I believe that that is exactly how your brain is working. You are, or I'll say the addict, just to be kind, the addict in you is, is fooling you and wanting you to believe that this is nothing. What you are doing is really not a problem, and you'll be able to control it, but we all know that that's not true. The minute there's intention, if you don't interrupt that cycle, you will act out. And if you don't act out, here I said you will, you may not that time. You may get very close. But the truth of the matter is the next time you'll act out or the next time. Because that's what addiction does. It makes you think you have control when you don't have control. And so you know I would say that you need to strengthen your recovery tools. And that is so imperative for good mental health and for combating sex addiction, especially sex addiction, because sex addiction is the toughest addiction to manage. 
there are so many things that go into sex addiction, whether it's trauma from your childhood, whether it's trauma reenactment, whether it's having been neglected, not having a solid attachment style, and wanting to medicate that with images that will absolutely keep you from focusing on the things that you need to work on for yourself. So don't don't cut yourself short here. Increase those recovery tools, and that is how you will be able to eventually stop probing the perimeters. So thanks for your email. Today, I'm really excited because we have Dr. Doug Carpenter on, and, and he wrote a book that also really helps um, a sex addict, a male sex addict, understand what their role was growing up how their gender role influenced them, how it may have caused toxic shame. You know, I say that partners are infamous for um, comparing themselves to other women. And when they've been betrayed, that escalates um, exponentially. Well, the same thing is true for men. There's lots of reasons that men start to compare themselves their masculinity, and they try to decide who are they. And so Dr. Doug is going to help us with that. Dr. Doug Carpenter, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hello, thanks. I'm uh, looking forward to being here. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, we had met, and you were kind enough to send me your book. And i got to tell you, it is really incredible. The book is Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Gender Role Conflict, Toxic Shame, and Complex Trauma, Finding Hope, Clarity, Healing, and Change. What a mouthful. If this doesn't give somebody some hope, I don't know what would. <laughs> but tell me, yeah, what made I, you uh, decide to write it? Well, I can tell you that some of it is definitely based on my own experience as a male Mm -hmm. and growing up in an environment where I really felt like society viewed men in really one of two ways. The Uh first one is more of a traditional role where you're an alpha male. You have to like sports. You have to like cars. You have to like rough and tumble play. Um, you know, you have to not like girls and think they have cooties. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's this, there's this one side of being an, an alpha male where there's all these strong masculine traits and behaviors and hobbies and things that you're supposed to like. And if you didn't like that, especially in grade school, then you were seen to be on the other side of the coin where you're a sissy or you're gay or they'll use derogatory terms like call you faggot and other um, really not nice names. And so through my own life, not being an alpha male, not being a gay male, I'm like society is missing this whole middle section of men that – are struggling trying to find their own sense of masculinity or masculinity when they don't fit either one of these roles. You know, if we look at 
the research on men, uh, actually most men are not alpha males. They fit somewhere in this middle section of men who have a, maybe a broad interest um, of things they like to do or they're not all into sports or hunting or cars or, you know, so there's a huge section uh, of the middle if we think of this on a continuum. And I really wanted to look at what are the factors that interplay in that middle section of men uh, in helping them find their sense of masculinity as they grow. Yeah, that makes so that, total that was, sense. That was really the, the impetus for the book was to look at that process for men and the things that can interfere with that process. And so I came up with the term non-alpha male um, because in, in the literature or in society we'll hear alpha males and we'll hear beta males. But again, where is that middle section of men? and who's paying attention to them about how they develop their sense of masculinity. So that's where I came up with the term, the non-alpha male. Well, that makes a lot so of sense. So I'm not sense. sure if and you, as, as a, someone who's read the book, do you have any reaction to that term, non-alpha male? Like what comes up for you when you hear that term? Well, you know, when I think of non-alpha male, based on having read your book, I just really believe that um, – what you're trying to do is create a continuum that's not uh, shaming or um, putting people in a specific box. You're really saying that A does not equal B. And right. what I, I hear you wanting to do is um, give permission to create some self-acceptance that, you know, what I might have called androgynous, you know, which is obviously men and or women who take on typical female or male characteristics. I don't see them as gay. I don't see her as a lesbian. I just see people right. that enjoy a certain um, behavior, a certain activity, whatever. So that's what I think when when you're talking non-alpha male, I I am believing that you are undoing some of the wounding that has occurred by by forcing men to be in that box. And, and for our listening audience, can you explain what a beta male is? Well, a, a beta male is someone who's seen more as a soft male, weak male, won't stand up for himself, um, is maybe more on the shy or quiet side, kind of unassuming, um, but they're just seen as very weak. And, yeah, and so if you think about most happy. men, yeah. again, I think they mm-hmm. fall on that continuum. I don't think you have to be super aggressive to be – you know, a healthy male, nor do you have to be on the other end of the spectrum super passive. Mm-hmm. I think you have to help well, it, develop a healthy balance um, in your personhood to to know when to be passive, to know when to be assertive, and to know when to be aggressive. And, you know, that's a style of communication and behavior that, I talk about in my book, Help or Heal, because truly, um, 
I don't know that I go with the aggressive, but I definitely be, yeah. uh, believe that being assertive with conviction um, sends a signal of what you believe, want, feel, and need. It doesn't mean you get your way, but it definitely it sends the message that the person is clear about their communication and what they what they hope to get out of uh, a situation or from another person. Now, what I heard you saying is you came up with this term, and I'm wondering what has the reaction been to a non-alpha male? What has the reaction been from those men? Yeah. Yeah. Some people read um, your book or colleagues. Yeah, I, I've had a lot of men contact me and say, I really relate to this, and I think this describes me. Um, I feel like I'm somebody who's kind of in the middle here, and I had some obstacles and struggled through um, elementary school, junior high, high school with trying to find my sense of masculinity when I was told masculinity is defined in only one certain way. Um, So they've really related to the book. Um, Another striking thing that happened, and I think I mentioned this in the book at one point, is that I had some alpha males admit to me how much pressure they feel to maintain that stigma for themselves, to present themselves as an alpha male, and that it's very hard for them to maintain that stance at times, and that it's exhausting, and they wish they felt more freedom to just be a person and be themselves and not continue to try to adhere to the stereotypic societal um, ideals of masculinity. And I found that to be very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, you talk about the fact that so much of these um, expectations are societal. And Mm -hmm. you talked about the boy code and the man rules in, in the book. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, if we if we go back to, let's say, the 70s, <clears throat> I think the first research that started looking at masculinities, masculinity, the concept of it, came out in the, in the 50s. There were some in the 60s. But in the 70s, there was a study by David and Brannon, and they identified uh, what was – they researched what was American masculinity at the time, and they came up with four different things, um, four different ideals, and they labeled them, number one, no sissy stuff, which that means you need to distance yourself from anything that appears feminine, and you need to avoid emotions. Number two was they labeled it as being a big wheel, and that you need to strive for achievement and success and focus on competition. Number three was be a sturdy oak, which meant avoid uh, vulnerability, stay composed and in control, and be be tough. And number four was give them hell, and that meant to act aggressively and be dominant. So in the 70s, they identified that as kind of uh, what they found to be the American uh, ideal of masculinity. 
So then if we look and follow the research um, through the rest of the 70s, the 80s, and in the early 90s, Ronald Levant um, came up with seven principles that he identified was the mindset around masculinity at the time. And that was that you should restrict emotions, avoid being feminine, focus on toughness and aggression, uh, be self-reliant, make achievement your top priority, be non-relational and objectify sex, and be homophobic. So, you know, the term toxic masculinity has been thrown a lot around a lot in the last, you know, four or five years, and probably even before that, but it's really come to the forefront in the last couple of years. But so many of these characteristics I hear as toxic for a man to hold these views and to hold these thoughts. And uh, so then in 1999, uh, researchers such as like William Pollock started, he wrote a book called Real Boys, Rescuing Our Boys from the Myths of Boyhood, where he began to challenge some of these things. And he started talking about how boys are put in what's called a gender straight jacket, that boys are pushed to adopt some of these characteristics that were talked about by David and Brandon and Ronald Levant, and that it really restricts boys from finding a place of healthy development. And then uh, Pollock also came up with the boy code and just talked about various rules that that young boys are, are taught either consciously or unconsciously, covertly or overtly, to adhere to. And then in the 2000s, Dan Griffin, who is a, um, a sociologist, came along and he developed the man rules. And the man rules are don't be weak, don't show emotion, don't ask for help, don't cry, and don't care about relationships. And these are the messages that continue to be sent to men as I said, either consciously or unconsciously, um, if we look at the roles in movies um, and novels, you know, it's about the hero, it's about the strength, it's about the masculinity of a person, where I think there needs to be a shift, especially in roles of parenting, to help sons and daughters, but we're focused on boys, to really develop themselves as, as human beings with the gifts and the talents that they possess and to help those flourish in a non-judgmental way, in a non-stereotypical way, because we need to develop men who have healthy views and concepts of themselves, not some like binary, either masculine role or feminine role. Oh, yeah, and and – you believe that many of these expectations, societal views, um, are imposed on men, and I do too. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, uh, it's it's easy to see how some men would would be on either side of the continuum based on on what's happened to them, the trauma that they've experienced as a child. You know. In your book, you talk about father absence and father hunger and father wounding. Um, yes. So 
you saw a lot of that as opposed to mother hunger and mother absence. Is that correct? I mean, yeah, that's really like for, for, ab- for father absence, it sounds just, you know, like the term that you did not have a father. The father was out of the home, either through death or imprisonment or left the mother and the child at an early age. And so um, th- there are men who had a complete lack of a role model in their life of of how to fashion themselves or um you know we learn as, as young children through the process of imitation and if there's not a male there to imitate then that boy is left to try to figure this out by himself figure this out through the messages that a mother might be sending or he may have to figure it out once he's at school around other boys and we can talk a little bit about the complications of that but then the the concept of the father hunger is that every male, especially as a child, has that hunger within them to be recognized and to be loved and to be nurtured by a father, that boys have a natural hunger in them to be drawn to a member of the same sex, to model themselves after, to imitate. And naturally, if the father's not present and he's out of the home, then there's going to be a father hunger developed there where I want that, I need that. And this is where you might see boys get involved in like gangs or inappropriate behaviors or even early sexual behaviors because they're longing for that space within them to be to be filled with something and, and to find an, another role or another male role. Uh, this is another reason why like sexual perpetrators can easily sniff out other boys who who have this father hunger because they can tell that there's a searching and a longing there for a connection to another male. And so perpetrators mm-hmm. often can can see that and will take advantage of that that father hunger. And father wound then is where the male has actually been wounded and hurt by another male. So we we can see that through neglect. We can see that through all kinds of of abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. So I mention all three of those in the book, and they're all connected to some degree. Um, The father wounding definitely involves the various types of abuse. But all three of those can leave a boy with a very – troubled sense of masculinity or lack of masculinity and where do I find connection to learn and achieve masculinity? And and so what do you suggest? Because let's face it, I work in sex addiction and I work with partner betrayal and the first thing we do with wounded partners is get them into some sort of support group with a partner-sensitive counselor, maybe even a coach, because we know she's going to need a whole host of support to deal with the discovery that she's just found out. My experience with men is if their wounding occurred early in their life, they have a tendency to want to minimize deny, defend, you know, it's almost like 
they'll share with you something that's horribly wounded and then they'll minimize it themselves and say, oh, but he did the best he could. Or, oh, and I, and I was really okay. And so I find that they're less likely to get the help they need. And when, when I think about you, Doug, and I think about people like Ken Adams, who really wants to help with mother, son, enmeshment, I mean, mm-hmm. you two have a real mission and a passion for helping men know that it's okay to identify these issues, um, work through them, and, and grow from them. So do Absolutely. You find that same and, thing? Uh, uh, yes, I am aware of Ken Adams, and yes, he works on the mother side of things. I, I tend to often uh, end up working more on the father side of things, um, and that's definitely the angle that the book is written from. But I think when those men that you were talking about there, when you encounter those and they do come to therapy, it is um, very important that they get paired with a very skilled therapist that can help them recognize that they're minimizing the impact of the role of the father in their life, the role of masculinity, the role of the trauma that they experienced. And, you know, hopefully over time you build enough rapport with that individual that you can get them to then go back and start looking at their past. I tend to do a lot of inner child work. Let's go back to those times when those woundings began. And, yes, your parent may have done the best they can, but that doesn't mean that you're not wounded. And we're not even saying that they were a bad parent. Maybe that was all they had to offer. But we are a combination of our life experiences. And we need to go through and look at your life experiences and learn what your brain registered. What did your limbic system register as far as feelings? What are the thoughts that you developed? What are the behaviors that you developed and the habits? And and then we need to work on starting to undo some of that and heal that from the beginning of the wound to come to a place, you know, of, of healing and restoration. Because if, if you just stay on the surface, you know, and, and I can appreciate going to self-help groups and having a, having a sponsor, and I'm all for all those things. But these kind of wounds run much deeper. And so you have to have a skilled therapist to, to work with someone to help them to begin to identify the degree of the wounding that they experienced. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of sense. And so if um, our listening audience were to try to find you, um, they would need to go to your website. And I'm, I'm wondering what that website is um, so we can get them to the right person to help. Sure. Uh, my website is, my wife is also a therapist, and we own Insight Counseling Services in Auburn Hills, Michigan. And so our website is www.insightcounselingpc.com. Well, that makes a and lot of sense. And there you will too. find all our therapists and, and profiles um, and you'll find me listed there. And do they have um, the same background that you do? 
Um, no, not necessarily. I'm I'm pretty much the one in the office that that works on these kinds of issues. I am slowly training mm-hmm. another therapist, kind of in uh, this line of thinking, thinking about trauma and how it affects an individual and um, and and inner child work and. Um, just it's it's a much deeper form of psychotherapy than let's say cognitive behavioral or some other type of behavioral approach. And so yes, I'm trying to train another clinician about this, but there are a lot of clinicians out there who can work on on these much deeper levels to work through mm-hmm. these traumas. Well, and that's exactly what I was going to say. So if they can't get to you because they live in Texas and you're in Michigan and you can't work across state lines, they can look for a trauma therapist because more than likely somebody who specifically works with trauma understands the wounding that can occur in childhood. Um, I want to ask you, the book really talks about how the lack of a male role model can really lead to gender role conflict and and would you be able to discuss maybe even define the different uh, scenarios that you see when there is that lack of a healthy male role model yes so you know we as men experience gender role conflict and that is when we are deviating or we devalue or we can restrict ourselves from what is perceived as the traditional male role model. When we deviate from that, we are experiencing gender role conflict because we may know cognitively that this is how society defines a male, and this is the way in which I need to act. But that's not what my heart is telling me to do. You know, when the stronger boys are picking on a younger boy, and I want to defend the younger boy, but if I do that, I'm going to be criticized by the stronger boys. And then I'm going to be seen as weak. So that's an example of gender role conflict. Another example can be if you – like to do something that's um, seen potentially more as a female trait, let's say like a boy likes to cook or is very artistic, Um, those can be seen as not masculine traits but more toward the feminine. And so a a boy can experience gender role conflict um, from deviating from that. So there was a researcher named uh, O'Neill, and he identified three areas, the devaluations, restrictions, and violations. Devaluations are gender role devaluations, are negative critiques of either yourself or others when conforming to, deviating from, or violating stereotypic gender norms of masculine ideology. So, and boys are often punished by their peers when they deviate from the traditional role models. And so that's where we find various boys being picked on, being bullied in school when when a child deviates from what is considered the norm. And I, I even mentioned this section of the book. I have a short section, I believe, on 
suicide suicide um and I believe the year of that I wrote the book, I can't remember if it was 11 or 13. I had identified 11 or 13 adolescent boys who had committed suicide that year because of gender role conflict. So it's definitely yeah, something really... serious. It's something to be taken uh, very serious and, and action taken when it's seen by adults. You know, kids who are being made fun of or bullied because of of the devaluations. The restrictions are gender role restrictions occur when confronting others or oneself um, or confining yourself or somebody else to that specific stereotype. So you might, as a boy, be restricting who you really are as a person, what you feel as a person, what what you would like to do in life because you're too afraid to express yourself as a person because it might violate or or go against that traditional masculine ideal. And then violations are gender role violations result, result from harming yourself, someone else, or being harmed by others when deviating from conforming to the gender roles that that have been set before you. So there are several ways to experience gender role conflict, um, and this is where I I go back. I end the book with a, a chapter of 25 parenting tips, and this this is really the crux of the book that I wanted parents to hear and to see is that you have to love your child for who they are, not who you want them to be, not the characteristics you would like them to develop, not the masculine ideals that you want them to have, but you have to help your child develop as a person with, without the toxic uh, masculinity, the toxic thoughts that might be put into them by society or their peers, but you have to support them and have them recognize when they're experiencing the, the devaluations, the restrictions, and the violations and then know as a parent how to deal with that and how to nurture the child. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, you know, when you said that obviously there's a higher mark for suicide with these kinds mm-hmm. of issues, it just points to the lack of resources and and that pressure, that societal pressure again, to be the kind of person who does suck it up who doesn't share feelings, who shows no vulnerability. So, and, of course, that's such a heavy weight that it would Very. understand the result and self-harm if, if not suicide. Um, yeah, and I that's love, where, I like, I go back to this middle section of men. You know, if, uh-huh. if you have certain traits or characteristics that are more androgynous or are not quite living up to the male stereotype, all of a sudden, though, from the the alphas, you're automatically made fun of and then thrown into Mm -hmm. the beta section. And then, Mm -hmm. so that boy can be left with a lot of shame. I feel shame about, there's so much shame about, well, I don't really think like them. That This is where the comparison starts. I don't think like them. I don't really want to act like them. 
so I'm kind of ashamed of my behaviors. But then the more they're bullied or the more they're made fun of, you run the risk of that shame turning into toxic shame. And toxic shame is – so regu- I view regular shame as when I'm like – I feel shame about a behavior or something that's, that I've done or I did or I didn't do. Toxic shame becomes shame about who I am. And when, when shame becomes toxic, then it leads to all other forms of, of problems such as addiction, suicide, because the boy starts thinking, well, there must be something wrong with me because why am I not like those other boys? Where do I fit in? I don't feel like I have a group to fit in. And so then that toxic shame begins to stir and build. And and if they are being made fun of or or having problems with peer groups, you know, that's where I talk about in the book the the idea of complex trauma. Complex trauma can be small traumas, but they're layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of trauma. So if a boy goes to school and is made fun of every day or a couple of times a week, that complex trauma is building along with that sense of toxic shame. And this is where, again, parents, school counselors, people who work in the field need to be very attuned to what are these children feeling and what are they experiencing and how can we help them not fall into that trap of toxic shame. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, toxic shame is so ugly. I mean, it really does shatter any identity that a man has and can do irreparable damage if he doesn't talk about it. And that's, again where I see so many addicts that they are they present very differently at the beginning of my work than they do towards the middle. When we really get to know and trust each other and they share that vulnerability, you really delve into that family history and begin to uncover the significant wounding. I mean, it's bad enough to be wounded, but then to be shamed about it and never feeling good enough and and experiencing that comparison and wondering where you really are on the continuum and then basically accepting that you must be less than and not good enough. And not only does it affect self-esteem, but it affects relationships. And if, if they're married already, it affects their children. And it's just, you're really doing a good job of stopping the generational damage when you do that deep healing work and that inner child work? Yeah, when I, um, kind of my method of operation in therapy is when a client comes in um, in with whatever presenting problem it might be, I really like to go back and, and use the old technique of doing a family genogram, you know, and go back three generations. But when I do that, I do it in much more depth than than just forming a genogram. We really take the time to look at each person, their personality, what did they bring to the family dynamic, what did they pass down in the family dynamic um, in relation to their own behavior or addictions or, or 
maltreatment of other individuals. And so we really try to start identifying intergenerational shame that has been perpetuated through the generations. And that often is very enlightening to the individual because they can see, oh, I I wasn't just born this way. Like the toxic shame that I experience can be coming from multiple generations. It can be coming from multiple sources within my life. And once we have that that really in-depth family genogram and when we've, ident- we've identified some of the family secrets and the family shame, um, then we start doing a trauma timeline. And we really walk people through their lives from their earliest memory until now. And we try to draw parallels and look at, okay, what made me make this choice or this decision here along life's journey? How much of that was from my past with either, you know, what I learned from parents that has been passed down through generations, how much of it came from society, how much of it came from my social and friend interactions at school. You really start looking at that, that deeper work. And then you, that makes it easier to, 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 to also do that inner child work because you can stop the person and say, okay, let's, let's just shut our eyes for a minute and let's go back to second grade when you just told me the story about second grade, let's try to identify what were you feeling during that time? What were you thinking? What was going on for you? What did you need? And then talk to them about, okay, find within yourself that healthy part of you that is an adult. What can that healthy part of you as an adult now say to that little child who's sitting there crying and wounded by this experience that we're talking about. And and you help them to then begin to have some empathy for themselves and find ways to love themselves themselves instead of perpetuating this toxic shame that, oh, I'm broken, something's wrong with me. I need to use to not feel this way. You teach them other healthy coping skills to heal that inner wounding. Well, and that is, uh, you know, I'm sure my listening audience is going, yes, I could use some of that. Can you share before we end one of the skills that you might encourage? Yes. Um, I often tell people to get a, a picture of themselves as a child and to either keep it in their wallet or set it on their desk. And to look at that picture and affirm the kid that's in that picture. You know, it, when we grow up with a sense of toxic shame, we spend a lot of time sending ourselves very negative messages. Um, and we've spent very little time affirming ourselves or who we are. So learning to find those positive messages because we have become so accustomed to the less than messages, either from other people in our lives or from our own internal toxic shame, and we are constantly sending ourselves those less than messages. And some, a, a major part of healing is learning to recognize that I am enough. 
I as a person, I am enough. I am good enough. I am good. And so learning to send that little child within us positive affirmations and the fact that the adult part of you has grown up, you've made it through these hurts and wounds, and you can reparent that little child within you. So sometimes it just helps people to have a visual of themselves to look at that little kid and think, you know what, he's not so bad, and give, give him some positive affirmations. So that, that's just one simple trait uh, or a, a trick. Another trick I do sometimes is I will have people buy a plant from a very, very small sprout and to nurture that plant and then draw parallels and therapy with them about how they're going to grow like this plant. But it takes nurturing and water and oxygen to grow this plant, and that's the same thing you have to do with the seed of hope within yourself. You have to give it what it needs to sprout and grow into uh, a beautiful plant. So those are just a, you know a couple of the easy ideas that I use in, in um, methods that I use in therapy to to really bring us mm-hmm. to an awareness of ourselves and what we need. Yeah, I metaphorically that's exactly what a person needs is to nurture themselves and a lot of intentional self care and a lot of gentleness, giving yourself permission right. to not be perfect and to make progress and to like themselves. So, Dr. Doug, I just so appreciate this book. I, you know, I have never read a book like it. So you have to feel really good about the fact that you really were able to convey a message that was so important that probably has not been heard. Um, I want to remind people that I am talking with Dr. Carpenter and his book, Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Gender Role Complex, Toxic Shame and Complex Trauma, Finding Hope, Clarity, Healing, and Change. It offers healthy resolutions for self-acceptance and psychological health. And we can't get enough of that, especially men who've never been given permission to show their vulnerability to talk about their pain and their confusion about who they should be. Keep me posted. Let me know what other projects you're doing, okay? Sure. I sure will. Okay. Well, thank you again for writing such a brilliant book. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on. It was it was a great treat to be with you today and, and to, to share uh, my words with your listening audience. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, that is and was Dr. Doug Carpenter, and he wrote the book, Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Male. And I got to tell you, if you have some gender confusion, if you don't feel manly enough, if you wonder why you're overly aggressive, you're the on the opposite side, and... Everybody, your boss, your wife, your mother is telling you that you're reacting really aggressively. This book might be exactly what you need. So, 
as I say at the end of every show, you know, there will only be one of you. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And I will be talking to you again next week. Make it a good one.